There's a chapter break here, of course, chapter 1 moving into chapter 2, but I would say let's try to ignore chapter 2's break, because we're not just starting a new whole new topic in chapter 2, it just flows out of Paul's prayer. As you know, Paul began in chapter 1 with this extremely long sentence, chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, one long Greek sentence of praise, just heaped one upon another, the great blessings, spiritual blessings that we have in Christ in the heavenlies. It's all about what did the Father do for us, what was his will for us, what was the work of the Son, what was the witness of the Holy Spirit, and then in verses 15 through 23, another long prayer. It's almost like when Paul is dictating this to his amanuensis, to his secretary, he is probably hardly taking a break. They must be saying, Paul, slow down. And he's like, I'm just gushing it out. So verses 15 through 23, one gigantic sentence of prayer. And if there's anything you can do for the benefit of the church, I would ask you to pray. I really believe, this is, as I mentioned, it's the title of, those, of these verses in my sermon series, Verses 15 through 23 of chapter 1 is a prayer God wants to answer. He wants to answer this, but we need to pray it. And I want you to pray that our eyes as a church family would be open in three areas to the hope of his calling. So all week, we're just not shopping for hope, looking for joy and peace somewhere out there. But our joy and peace is in our relationship with Christ. It's in God's word and the promises and the truth of God's word. That is where we have Joy and peace in believing through the power of the Holy Spirit, Romans 15, 14. Secondly, we need to have our eyes open as you pray that we would realize that we are the riches of the glory of his inheritance. That the whole reward of Christ's suffering on the cross, the reason he felt the immense wrath of the Father upon himself for our sin was that he might gain us. So he doesn't gain any more as God He's he's not a bigger God, better God, greater God. There's nothing in going to the cross that makes him any better than he already was before. The only thing he gains by going to the cross is you and I. We're the reward. When I I want to serve the Lord in a manner worthy of the calling with which I've been called. And then third, we've got to remember the power the power that was there when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, that was last Sunday night, and then the ascension through the heavenlies, and how the devil and those demons sought to keep Jesus' body in the grave, Psalm chapter 18, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, and you can even think of Colossians 2.15, as Jesus took, he led captivity captive, we'll get into that in Ephesians 4, and the devil and all the principalities and powers were disarmed. Boy, Christ is still victorious, isn't he? The power that was displayed at his resurrection and ascension that caused him to be seated at the most highest place above every name that has been named, both in this age and the age to come. God the Father has given him all authority. Wow, praise the Lord. So let's get our eyes open. to Listen, do not forget that this entire week, when you get out of bed tomorrow morning, I know it's Memorial Day and maybe you're not working. Maybe you have stuff to do around the house. You'll go to a parade. I'm not sure what you'll do tomorrow, but I will guarantee this. You are going to be in a spiritual battle. Every day is a spiritual battle. And if you don't remember that, if your eyes are not open to that, you are, can you imagine being out in the Middle East, wherever there's a battle raging, and you are unaware of the enemy and its bullets? Foolish. You are going to go down. And if all week we're not thinking about the power of the Holy Spirit, the work of Christ in our life, hey, I'll tell you what, anything can happen. 
All right, so coming out of that, what Paul does now in Ephesians chapter 2 is he explains how is the power of Christ working toward us who believe. Here's how he did it. We, who were once dead in sins, became spiritually alive. Right there is the power of God. October 1st, 1993, for me, I was spiritually dead. That evening, I was completely spiritually dead. And the moment I placed my faith in Jesus Christ, I was made alive, literally. I, I, and I'll tell you what, for me, it was strange because I opened the Bible that evening and I was like, just kind of like this young man I talked to this week, it's like, I get it. I, I now know why Christ died and I'm going to find every detail I can about him. And it was, it's been thrilling since that day. Spiritually, he made us spiritually alive. That takes the power of God. Not only that, but he raised me up to be seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Although positionally, that's where I am. It's not, I'm not there yet. I will guarantee my body is coming out of the ground in a bodily, physical resurrection. And I will be sitting with Christ as a joint heir, ruling and reigning in his kingdom. It's a promise. And although it's all past tense in Ephesians 2, it actually hasn't happened yet. I'm in the in-between time. But it is going to happen. And it's all because of the, the same power that raised Christ up to seat him at the right hand of the Father will raise me up and seat me with Christ. There is nothing that will stop it. Isn't that, is this, see, this is such a remarkable chapter. So basically, let's walk through it. Ephesians chapter 2. Father in heaven, as we begin this text, help us to really contemplate and, and recognize the power of Christ that is working effectively towards those who believe. And help us to... Remember where we came from, know where we're going, and be blessed by the free gift of salvation that we've been so graciously given. Just open our eyes and minds to these truths. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I have three points this evening. My first point, apart from Christ, you are spiritually dead. Now, you try to tell somebody when you're walking around, if they, do not, if they do not know Jesus Christ, they are dead men walking, spiritually dead. They have no concept what you're talking about. None at all. There was a man named Jeremy Bentham. Does anybody know Jeremy Bentham? Remember Hetty Green? I told you about her at the beginning. And I mean, I've told you about a few people. But Jeremy Bentham, he was born in 1748, and he died in 1832. He was a rich man, a philanthropist. As a matter of fact, he was the founder of utilitarianism. Utilitarianism is the, it's the philosophy that the chief end of man is happiness. So his big thing that he propagated was, it doesn't matter what you do, do whatever you can to be happy. It's kind of like the Joel Osteen of that age, basically. Think happy thoughts, you'll be happy. You know, think yourself well, you'll be well, that type of thing. This is Jeremy Bentham. He was a rich, rich man. And before he died, he gave a large chunk of money to a hospital in London with one condition. He would be attending every board meeting of that hospital, even after he died. So, it's true. After he died, every year for the board meeting, the annual board meeting, they propped his dead carcass in a chair with his 17th century garb on, and they had a sentence that they said at the beginning of of the board meeting, Mr. Jeremy Bentham, present but not voting. I'm serious. This happened for about a hundred years. He went to every board meeting, propped up his dead bones. That is seriously, I mean, that's kind of creepy. But I could tell you this. Before I placed my faith in Jesus Christ, I was spiritually dead. 
Right? So let's take a look at what it means to be apart from Christ and spiritually dead. Chapter 2, verse 1. And you, so we're going to continue on from the power of Christ that we talked about this morning. And you, I'm going to skip the words in italics. They are not in the Greek. All right, so I'm going to skip those words. And you, who were dead in trespasses and sins. I think Paul wants us to know what power of Christ it took to get us spiritually alive. We were dead in trespasses and sins. The very moment Adam ate the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the garden, that moment, spiritually, he died. He was still alive physically. He was alive emotionally. But the, the spirit, which has a relationship with God, which communes with God, was dead, separated from God. All right? That is the way that we are born. Apart from Christ, we are dead men and dead women walking. We have, we have a physical nature, we have a physical body, we have an emotional body, and we can make decisions and we can do creative things and we, we can write music, write poetry, we can build things, we can go to school, we can learn things and get degrees, but what we cannot do is have a relationship with our Creator. We are spiritually dead. That is the condition of every person. We are powerless to do anything good. Can we do good things? Yes, but in God's eyes, all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Isaiah 64, right? So we are, we are dead. Then he goes on, you who were dead in trespasses and sins. Now, what is a trespass? A trespass is simply you're crossing a boundary that God has made. God's holy standard has boundaries. And there's nothing wrong with boundaries. God has boundaries. He told Adam, eat the fruit of every tree in the, uh, every tree in the garden, but of the one tree in the center of the garden, you shall not eat. That was an extremely clear boundary. The very moment Adam stepped over the boundary, he trespassed against God. We're dead. Why are we dead? Because we trespass God's boundaries. God has set boundaries uh, based on his character and morality and holiness, and we are crossing them all the time. That is who we are by nature. We are trespassers. And sins, we're dead in trespasses and sins. Sins, it means to miss the mark. God's target is a bullseye, and we go away from the mark. We have fallen short of his glory. So we were dead. Secondly, look at verse 2. You who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, we once walked in all of those trespasses and sins, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Secondly, we were disobedient. Not only were we dead in trespasses and sins, we were disobedient. It says, we once walked, which means it was our manner of life. My manner of life was characterized by three things. The world. The world system is the system that is run and ruled by the devil himself. It is in opposition to God. It is in rebellion against God. And it's been in place since Adam fell in the garden. You know that the world system is designed to consume you, to destroy your mind, to keep you thinking about the Lord, to keep you living for the Lord. It is simply that world influence. It's the system that inundates us 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And we better be aware of it. The amount of time people spend with TV, movies, music, social media, you compare that to the truth that we put in our mind, what is more? What, where, where is the more influence in time 
Is it coming from God's word or is it coming from everything that the world has to offer? And we don't even realize it, but the world drives us to be self-centered, right? The world says, to be cool, to be great, you have to have this, you have to look like this, you have to wear this, you have to eat this, you have to drink this. And if you don't, you don't belong. And it just creates such desire in us. And then we think, well, if I have that, it'll bring me joy and peace. And then we're back to that whole endless cycle of despair. So we were disobedient. Why? It says here, we were disobedient because we walked according to the course of this world. The world system wants us to rebel against God's truth. Secondly, we walked not only according to the course of this world, but according to the prince of the power of the air. Hey, we walked following after Satan, the father of lies. So we have an enemy in the world system, not the created world, not the trees and plants and things like that, but it's the world system and rebellion against God. We have an enemy in the devil. I really do believe that the devil and his fallen angels are actively working in the unsaved to keep them blinded, to keep them loving the world, chasing the world, finding their hope in the world, finding their joy and peace in the world. And when it's not enough, you just have to kick up the level of entertainment or drugs or whatever, just a little more, just a little more. The devil is so masterful at keeping people enslaved to sin, and he would love to bind believers back in their old sins. He would just love it. So we have an enemy in the world system that is opposed to God. We have an enemy in the devil, because we once walked, according, it says, according to the prince, the ruler of the power of the air, meaning this domain, planet Earth. Why is he prince of the power of the air? Because originally in creation, God had given it to Adam. Remember in Genesis 1, God said to Adam, subdue and tread and have dominion over all the world. And the moment Adam sinned against God, he transferred that authority to the devil. And so since that day in the garden, the devil... This has been a sphere of activity and rulership. And if we don't, if we're not aware of it, it will entrap us. And one single unbelieving act will unravel our testimony for Christ. Oh, just be on guard. We have a, the world is our enemy. The devil is our enemy. And look at the last part. The spirit, the devil himself, and his, um, his destructive wiles, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, Verse 3, among whom also we all once, see this is all past tense, we used to live like this, we used to walk like this, we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. So not only have we conducted ourselves in the days past, according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of air, but also once we, we walked and conducted our lives according to the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the drive, the passion of the flesh, and of the mind. Now, you guys know what's in the flesh, right? I'm going to go back to Galatians. I'm just going to read to you the desire, or what's, in the actual, what's in our flesh. This is in Galatians chapter 5. If you want to look there, you can. Verse 16, Galatians 5, 16, Paul says to the Galatians, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you, shall not, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Notice he doesn't say stop fulfilling the lust of the flesh. No, he says be walking in the Spirit, and the result is you're not going to be fulfilling the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, 
and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another. Listen, every day you are in a spiritual battle. Something is vying for your affections and your desires and your allegiance. It's the world, the devil, and the flesh, or it's God through the Holy Spirit. There's a constant battle. Look at verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. This is in us as believers. Adultery, fornication, that is all kinds of sexual immorality. Pornography, I'll tell you what. Does the devil know how to work pornography? It is the biggest business in the world. It is the sale of flesh. Because that is a drive, that is a passion of the flesh that God gave us. And pornography distorts it and destroys it. That is part of fornication. It is, there's adultery, there's fornication, uncleanness. Oh, just think of the depravity and the sin that is out there. That, listen, not just in the world, but in our flesh. There's uncleanness in our flesh that is just desiring to be given to be given um, power, to be, be, to be used and operated in our, in our bodies. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, Revelries and the like. Wow, that is still in our. That's still in our bodies. It's still in our flesh, right? The old man is crucified, but I can present the Romans six says I choose every day who I present this body to. I can present it as a slave of unrighteousness to sin, or I could present this body as a slave of righteousness for God. And it, and whose choice is it? It is my choice. I can I can yield to the Holy Spirit in his power, or I can yield to my flesh and all sorts of wickedness comes out. Wow. For the unsaved person, apart from Christ, you're spiritually dead. You are walking disobedient according to the world, according to the course of the devil, and according to your own sinful passions and lusts. Wow, it sounds pretty hopeless, doesn't it? It is. There's no hope in that life. That life will drive you to despair and misery. He goes on, look at the end of it, end of verse 3, and we're by nature, so we're born this way, we are born this way, plus we choose this way, and we're by nature children of wrath, just as the others. We are children of God's wrath. That is all we deserve. So I would say we are doomed. We are dead, we were disobedient, and we were doomed. That is people that are living their lives apart from Christ. It's a dismal and a hard picture. But we, as unsaved people, apart from Christ, deserve all of God's wrath. Now, God is infinite, so I can't even imagine what an infinite God's infinite wrath would be on a person in hell. I have no idea. But I can tell you this. It's not a picnic. The Bible talks about narrowness of space. The Bible talks about torment. It talks about the fire not being quenched. That is simply what we deserve. Listen, get this straight. We are not good people in trouble with the bad God. We are not. 
See, when you, th- when you talk to the world, it's like, we're good people in trouble with the bad God. He's a God of anger, right? No, we are bad people in trouble with the good God. And he, he is a just God, and wrath must come upon the disobedient. So we're dead, disobedient, and doomed to suffer all of God's wrath, just as others that are spiritually dead apart from Christ. So do you see why we need the power of Christ that raised him from the dead and seated him to the heavenlies? We need that power of Christ working effectively. So let's move on. Look at verse 4. My first point, apart from Christ, we're spiritually dead. My second point, with Christ, we're spiritually alive. This union with Christ, look what happens. Verse 4. But God. Two of the best words in all the Bible. Verses 1, 2, and 3, we are without hope. We are deserving of wrath. We are dead, disobedient, and doomed. But God. And so now he just throws out God's character. But God, who is rich in mercy. Mercy is God not giving us what we do deserve. We deserve all of the wrath of God. His mercy is, he doesn't give it to us. But God, who is rich. And aren't you glad he's rich in mercy? Because how much wrath do I deserve? An infinite wrath. He has got to be infinite in his mercy or I'm suffering. Hold your place there and go, go to Psalm 103 quickly. This is my father-in-law, Russ Markula's favorite chapter. Every time I go to Psalm 103, I think of Pastor Markula. What a neat man. Psalm 103. And, and he was, I could just picture him saying this, sitting in a chair with his legs crossed. He, talking very slowly because I think he was just he was a thoughtful man. He always thought, thought, thought. Take a look at Psalm 103. The whole chapter is wonderful. Read it on your own. Verse 4. Here's our God who redeems your life from destruction. That's Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. Who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies. That's verse 4. He crowns us with his loving kindness and tender mercies. Then move on. Verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in mercy. Aren't you glad that he's not quick to anger and slow in mercy? He is slow to anger, but abounding in mercy. Look at verse 11. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. All right, picture that. For the biblical people, for the early church, They would look up at the universe. They had no concept of getting that high up there. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so that is how great God's mercy is. Verse 12, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Boy, if you look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, we were dead people walking. We were disobedient, walking according to the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we were doomed to suffer God's eternal wrath. It says here, he has removed our transgressions as far as the east is from the west. That is a God of mercy. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. Verse 17, but the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. I love verse 17. His mercy is everlasting to everlasting. There's never going to be a moment when I don't need his mercy, and there never will be a time when I won't get it. God, who is rich in mercy. 
Because, verse 4 of back in Ephesians 2, because of his great love with which he loved us. We know from Romans 8, how is God's love demonstrated? Again, I'm just going to say this really, again, I feel like I say this all the time. Jesus Christ, when he went to the cross, he suffered an equal and full payment. Whatever I, as a child of wrath, deserved, Jesus Christ paid in full. He didn't just get a slap on the wrist. Like, listen, for me to pay for my sin means how long in hell? Eternity in hell. See, I can't even add up eternity. I mean, we do infinite geometric sums in math, but I can't comprehend it. I still can't comprehend it, and I teach it. But somehow, Jesus Christ paid this infinite debt of sin for me. And whatever that would feel like, the agony and the suffering and the screaming and the flesh burning and the eyeballs burning and the thirst and the not being able to be satisfied, whatever that is like for all eternity, Jesus Christ did for me. See, when he traded places with us, when he died on the cross for us, God gave him the full punishment so we could escape the full punishment. Whatever, whatever the full punishment feels like. Does, can you grasp that? It's not like God the Father said, oh, I'm just going to wink at that, and oh, Jesus has to feel the nails on the cross, and that's good enough for him. No. He took my place fully. The wrath that I deserve as a child of wrath, Jesus Christ suffered the wrath of God upon himself. I can't get that. So when I read this, I have to think about it. Verse 4, But God, who is rich in mercy, has not given me what I do deserve. Instead, he put, placed it on Jesus because of his great love with which he loved us. But look at verse 5, even more alarming. When did he love us? He loved us even when we were dead in trespasses. See, he didn't love us because we're so lovable. He didn't love us because he saw something great in us. He didn't love us because he thought, oh, you know, these people are going to make such a great time for me in heaven. He loved us when we were alienated rebels, wicked in our mind and heart. And if we could kill God, I think a spiritually dead person would say, I would kill God and take him off the throne so I could be God. That's what sin is. Sin is... Ungodding God and unthroning God. It is saying, God, I wish you were dead. I will be my own God. I will be in charge now of everything. Wow. Even when we were in that state, he died for us. He loved us so greatly. And then in little parenthesis, uh, or th- then he explains now. So that's God's character. Rich in mercy, great in love, and then, of course, full of grace. That's coming up right here in parentheses. By grace, you have been saved, verse 5. God is gracious. You know what grace is? Receiving the love of Christ, which we cannot earn and we do not deserve. It is freely given. It is motivated entirely out of the character of the, of the one without regard to the cost to himself. That is God. He just, he, his nature is to give and give and give with no thought of himself. Wow. 
So verse 5. Here's what he did. There are, four, there are three things that Christ did for us in our salvation. Verse 5, he made us alive together with Christ. We are spiritually regenerated. Now that is the power of God. October 1st, 1993, I placed my faith in Jesus Christ, and at that moment, instantly, I was given a new nature, a new creation. My old nature was not fixed or repaired or made better. My old man was crucified with Christ, but my old nature, Ephesians 4 says, continues to grow corrupt in its lusts. So my old nature is more corrupt now than it was 20 years ago, but I have a new nature which cannot sin. It is amazing. God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Secondly, he not only made us alive, verse 6, he raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Because I am in such union with Christ, when he rose from the dead, I rose from the dead. When he ascended, I ascended. And when he sat at the right hand of the Father, I I am sitting at the right hand of the Father. Although it's not a physical reality right now, it's a guarantee. It is all past tense. I am guaranteed I will be ra- my body will be raised up and I'll be resurrected. I will be raised up to sit with Jesus Christ on his throne, ruling and reigning with him. It's, it's just, it is a promise and a guarantee. That is, that is the power of God. Then he says in verse 7, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So in all eternity in the future, the ages to come, that is, not only in this world, but the world to come, the eternal state, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. I really believe after, I don't know, could we even say a million years in heaven, Jesus Christ will gather us around and he'll say, now my children, listen to more of the depth of the love that I have for you. And he will tell us, even after being in heaven, we'll still be learning. And he's going to say, but this, you never knew about me. I'm going to tell you more of my grace and the loving kindness that I exercised towards you when you believed. Boy, he is so great. He is so great. And let me finish up with this last thing. Apart from Christ, we're spiritually dead. In union with Christ, we're spiritually alive. He has made us alive, raised us up, and seated us. And then, in Christ, we are his workmanship. Let's look at these last verses. Verse 8, because really, verses 1 through 10, 1 through 7 is one Greek sentence, 8 through 10 is the second. But listen to this. This is the conclusion. For by grace... God's rich love toward us, which is not earned or deserved, you have been saved. We have been saved from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and someday soon, the presence of sin. And it is through faith. It is apart from the works of the law. It is apart from religion and ritual and works. It is by faith alone. Now here's where people get goofed up. People think somehow you have to put works in there. And they say you must turn from your sin, you must confess your sin. It is impossible to do that. Before you are saved, you have no power to do that. The only thing we can do is place our faith in Jesus Christ, and at that moment, the Holy Spirit regenerates us, seals us, and becomes the earnest of our inheritance. So people make two gigantic mistakes. One is 
They put works before salvation. They say you must do something in order to be saved. You must turn from your sin. You must pray a prayer. You must do something. And then God will respond and save you. And the answer is, that is a lie. So the salvation is by grace through faith alone. All right? Once you are saved and you have the Holy Spirit, here's the second error. The second error is people say, well, now that you're saved, that's all that matters. And there's nothing, good works don't matter after. You know, they definitely don't matter before, but now they don't matter after. As a matter of fact, I was talking to somebody and they were saying, anytime that you talk about works, it's always legalism. And I would say, absolutely not. It is legalism if the works are trying to gain you favor from God. Legalism with works is when you do a work to find favor with God. But after your salvation, God wants good works to flow out of our life in Christ. So one extreme is they tie works to justification, which nullifies the gospel. And the second mistake is they say, yes, you're born again, but now there's nothing after that God wants you to do. There's no good works that can flow out of that. Now, can you choose not to do good works? Absolutely. You had a choice on that. But God's desire is, by the power of the Holy Spirit and through his word, listen, we once walked disobedience. I really believe once we're born again, God wants us to walk obediently. He wants us to walk in newness of life. So let's look at this quickly. Verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, It is nothing you can do. You cannot earn it. You cannot work for it. You cannot deserve it. It is not of yourselves at all. It is 100% Jesus Christ. It is the gift of God. The it is salvation. Salvation is a gift of God. Not by works. It's not of works. Listen, faith is not the gift of God. It's not like God gives faith to certain people and he doesn't give faith to other people. And if you didn't happen to get faith as a gift, you cannot, be, you cannot be saved. You are not one of the elect. I don't see that here at all. I see salvation is the gift of God. I know some people say God has to cause you to be born again first, and then you can put your faith in Jesus Christ. But that's like backwards. Placing your faith in Jesus Christ is at that moment resulting in the new birth. So you... You know, God doesn't cause you to be born again, and now you can finally exercise faith in Jesus. So, I don't know. My understanding is we are spiritually dead, disobedient, and doomed apart from Christ. We place our faith in Jesus Christ. He gives us the Holy Spirit. We are regenerated. We are made alive, raised up, and seated with Christ. And all of that is a gift of God, not of ourselves. Look at verse 9, not of works lest anyone should boast. No one can boast. So here are my quick three points about being in Christ. My third point, in Christ we are God's workmanship. Salvation is a gift. No one can boast because it's all of Christ and not of us. But look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So I wanted to get to this verse for a reason. We once walked according to the course of the world, according to the flesh, and according to the devil, but now we should walk in the Holy Spirit, producing a life of good works. 
Good works is not the root of our salvation, it is the fruit of our salvation. It flows out of our life in Christ. So we are his workmanship. The word workmanship, you guys have heard this before, it's, our root word is poem. But really, really, workmanship in the Greek culture, it was a statue, a painting, an architecture, a song. It was anything creative that you would do. Anything like that would be a poem. It, the only other time this word is used is found in Romans 1 verse 20, where it says creation, the material world, is God's workmanship. Romans 1.20. So like the material creation screams glory of God, so our lives should scream praise to the glory of God. Let me ask you. We once walked according to the course of this world in rebellion against God. We walked according to the devil who hates God. And we once walked according to our flesh, which loves to all those disgusting things in Galatians 5. True? Should we walk different as a believer? Absolutely. We absolutely should walk differently. We absolutely should. What a horrendous thing if we were born again and then we chose to continue to walk in the world, love the devil's ways, and love the, love the sinful flesh that brought Jesus Christ to the cross. God forbid that we would do that. Um, John Newton said this, I am not what I ought to be. Ah, how imperfect and deficient. I am not what I wish to be. I abhor what is evil and I would cleave to what is good. I am not what I hope to be. Soon, soon shall I put off mortality and with mortality all sin and imperfection. Yet though I am not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor what I hope to be, I can truly say I am not what I once was, a slave to sin and Satan. And I can heartily join with the apostle and acknowledge, by the grace of God, I am what I am. So we used to be a a slave to sin, the devil, and the flesh? No longer. So we should walk in good works, newness of life, that God will be glorified in us. And God prepared these beforehand. He wants us to walk that way. Now, he's going to tell us in chapters 4, 5, and 6 what that walk looks like. What does it look like in our marriages? What does it look like in parenting? What does it look like at the workplace? What does it look like in church? He's going to tell us what does that walk look like. And we'll spend chapters 4, 5, and 6 uncovering that. Apart from Christ, spiritually dead. But with Christ, spiritually alive. In Christ, we are his workmanship. Salvation is a gift. We don't boast, but it should result in good works. Father, I pray that we'd have an understanding of the place of works in our relationship with you. We are not saved by them. We are saved by grace through faith alone. But the moment the Holy Spirit indwells us, he has regenerated us, we have a new power I pray, Father, that we would love your word, that we would love Jesus Christ and desire to walk in obedience to your precepts of grace. We're not under the law. We're not doing things to find favor with you. or to. But we, we, Father, we want our lives to glorify you. We want to bear much fruit. And so I pray that we would have a proper understanding of the gospel message, a clear understanding of works and relationship to that. 
And that out of our church, we would walk different than the course of this world. Of course, the world's going to take notice of that. They're going to see right away that we don't love what they love and we don't think like they think. And we have a different mind. And Father, I know that the devil and his evil angels hate any believer who will live a godly, holy life. But we also know that that's what you want. First Peter 1, Father, we know that you say, be holy as you are holy. You want godly men and women with testimonies that are honoring to Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit. Oh, I pray, Father, that we would live lives that would bring glory and honor to you and just be so concerned, so aware of even you know, the tragedy of one unbelieving act of sin, what that can do to a life. So protect this church, Father, and bring glory to your holy name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.